0: Welcome to Frontier War Stories. This is episode 32. Before I go on any further, I would like to pay my respects to the country in which I'd like to pay my respects to the country in which uh, I make this podcast on and where my guest is, and of course where the listeners are from as well. I would also like to uh, pay my respects to all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till around the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continue to resist and fight. I also would like to pay my respects to all uh, people uh, and Aboriginal people across this beautiful continent. Uh, each episode I speak with different Aboriginal and non aboriginal people about research, books and oral histories which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars and these are our war stories. My guest uh, is Professor Lyndall Ryan. Uh, some of you may uh, have heard me speak uh, to her in the past, several times actually, uh, on, on the podcast here and also on at my old work uh, at uh, AAA Murray Country. Um, and we're discussing the events of uh, Waterloo Creek. Uh, for myself and many other Gamilara people, uh, the twenty sixth of January, like all Aboriginal people, I should say, is a very somber and sad and very conflict-ridden uh, day. You know, it's the day, you know uh, the first fleet arrived. It's the day that you know uh, Australia chose has chosen to celebrate, um, and it's the day that you know Aboriginal people have chosen to mourn um, and have chosen to um, protest on. As I mentioned, for Gumoray people in particular. It's the anniversary of the Waterloo Creek Massacre, uh, which took place about 20 kilometres outside of Maureen. Uh, the events leading up to this, I'll be talking about uh, with Professor Lyndall Ryan. Uh, Lyndall, uh thanks for coming back on the podcast and having uh, a conversation with us, and, and, and in particular this conversation, which is very important to myself and um, many people, uh, not just Camillerate people, but many people I'm sure around the country as well
1: thank you both for
0: having me on board. <clears throat> That's always a pleasure to have you on um you know you are um somebody very knowledgeable within this field uh who was wh- whose work goes back so far um, and you know uh, continues to shed light on you know uh the atrocities that have uh, happened in this earlier period uh, in, in in what now is Australia and has been, you know, crowned the frontier uh, wars or frontier conflict as well. Uh, just really quickly, um, for anybody who may not be aware, Lyndall uh, and her team at um, the University of Newcastle have come up with a very, very important um, map and document which uh, maps the many many massacres that have taken place across this continent. Just really quickly, could you give us an update on where that's at?
1: Yes, um, we've... That the team is sort of coming, the project is coming to an end, not because we've, uh, we've identified every possible massacre that took place, but uh, we've not only run out of money, but the team is getting older and they need to go on to other projects. But at the moment, the map has uh, about 420 sites, massacre sites identified on the map. And we're now starting to share the data with other big new projects, uh, one with the University of Melbourne. And we're still sharing our data with the Guardian newspaper. And uh, we're about to hand over a new lot of data to them over the next couple of weeks. So this is a big moment for us. Um, It's a bit of a watershed moment in the fact that uh, I think that new data New technologies are coming in to make the map more available. New projects are starting off, building on the work that we've done. And so it's been a very uh, exciting, revealing project about the extent of the massacres on, on the frontier right across Australia. And the more we look, the more we find. But we also need to move on. And I think there's a number of projects that... Aboriginal people across Australia uh using from the map and building the, their own projects. So this has been very exciting, and for that reason, I'm very pleased to talk about Waterloo Creek today. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Are you happy with? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Are you? Yeah, where are you? I can. Yeah, I guess are you um, happy with? where um i guess the map is at and sort of the stages you know um you where where it's at, at the moment and um what are you looking to do into the future as well to so sort of stay within in this sort of field looking at and trying to track down more sites or are you off doing uh going to work on some other projects
1: i think we're building on what we have we we've noticed uh now that we've got uh you know such an immense amount of data <clears throat> we're spending more time analyzing the data uh and what it means for australia how it relates to uh colonial conflict in other parts of the world and uh, we're getting a lot of interest from um scholars elsewhere, uh, in New Zealand, in South Africa, in Canada, and in the United States, where similar wars were being fought at the very same time. We're realizing that um, uh, until about the 1820s, the, the massacres were really the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. The soldiers who fought in the Napoleonic Wars were conducting the massacres in Australia, and then, and when we're getting to Waterloo Creek, we're still getting veterans who fought in the Napoleonic Wars um, conducting uh, massacres in the same way as was happening in the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. So we're finding we're moving on with that. Also, finding that the more recent massacres in the 20th century, in the 1920s, were fought by returned servicemen from World War One, and they had more, um, they had uh, uh, weapons from World War One in which they conducted the massacres, and were using the same strategies and tactics that they had used in the Middle East uh, in World War One. So we're finding some very interesting um, strategies that were being used, and it sort of opens up new understandings uh, of these massacres because as time went on, more more Aboriginal people are being killed in massacres. The weapons are becoming more sophisticated. Uh, We're also finding that in some parts of the British Empire, uh, special weapons uh, like the bazooka is being uh, uh, developed specifically to fight uh, pe- people uh, who owned the land and the resistors. And when World War I broke out, there was a big debate in London about whether these weapons that would be used against indigenous peoples could be used against uh, Europe- their European foes, the Germans and the Austrians. I find that very interesting. They do in the end, but it takes them about two years to make that decision. So it gives us new insights that these colonial wars are being fought in a far more vicious way, even, than was being fought in World War One. So we're kind of trying to uh, find new understandings of how wars are being fought. And there's no doubt that the colonial wars uh, being fought in a very violent way that uh, that the British are reluctant to use against their European foes. And I find that very interesting.
0: Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, I'd love to now get into... Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you mentioned that um, I do want to talk about uh, yeah, throughout chat as well is the use of military experts, as you mentioned, or, or, or veterans or sort of... Yes you know, as you mentioned yeah. before. Um, but yeah, let's just, yeah, we'll kick it off. So as I mentioned before, uh, we're going to chat about the Waterloo Creek Massacre and what sort of led to you know, the eventual massacre and the site, which is about 20 kilometres outside of Maureen, uh in northwest New South Wales, um, community where my old man was born. Uh, my brother and my nephews live there at the moment. Uh, we go back there quite often. Um, but yeah, could you... <clears throat> what is for, for our listeners? Yeah, uh, what is uh, the the Waterloo Creek massacre, and then we'll go back from there.
1: Okay, the Waterloo Creek massacre took place on the twenty sixth of January, eighteen thirty eight, exactly fifty years after the British invaded Australia. It took place uh, in response to alleged Aboriginal attacks on uh, on pastoral leases that had been taken up uh, a couple of years before. Uh, with the arrival of lots of sheep and cattle in Gamilaroi country, around Moree, uh, Gamilaroi people were resisting these new invaders. Uh, they were um, uh, taking some sheep and cattle, Uh, because they were on their kangaroo hunting grounds. They were, were, some of them were eating the sheep and cattle, but we don't have all that much evidence of that. It was rather uh, trying to force these these invaders to leave. That was the, and they had killed some um, stockmen because the stockmen were taking Aboriginal women for sex. So it was a very desperate time for the Gamilaroi people. A year before, in 1837, um, a Crown Lands Commissioner had toured the area on horseback, and he reported back to the Governor in Sydney that Aboriginal people were uh, resisting these new invaders and the invaders were demanding that there should be support and that uh, perhaps um, mounted police should be sent out to destroy Aboriginal camps in the area, arrest some Aboriginal people and bring them to trial. So uh, in December, 1837, there was no governor in New South Wales at the time. The previous governor had gone home to London and the new governor hadn't yet arrived. So Colonel Snodgrass, who was the head of all of the British Armed Forces in New South Wales, was the acting governor and he was keen for action. So he detailed the head of the Mounted Police um, to um, uh, Major Nunn to take a a big group uh, of Mounted Police to tour the area visit all the new properties and get an idea of what was happening and to exact revenge or reprisals, as he said. And uh, the expedition lasted two months. It started in early December. Uh, It ended right at the end of January. So it was a pretty important um, uh, campaign. It was really a campaign to, uh, to calm down the frontier, as he called it. So when he set off, he visited a number of properties um, uh, around, I think he started around Manila, and and toured the area uh, to present day Maury, and then came back in a big swoop. He did uh, arrest some Aboriginal people, but they escaped, which was good. But at uh, Waterloo Creek, uh, there was uh, obviously a big campsite near there, uh there was a, the drought was starting, so the water in the creek was not as uh was beginning to run dry after all, it was high summer and uh a, 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 the aboriginal people attacked the posse of uh, horsemen. there were at least twenty three horsemen and poss- and probably more as some local settlers <coughs> excuse me and some stockmen joined the party. And the party was attacked by some Aboriginal warriors, and a couple were one. We know that one uh, horseman was injured, and they realised this was the opportunity to really exact revenge. So the party of stockmen pulled back. They um, <clears throat> they prepared their <clears throat> their weapons, uh, gave their horses a, a drink and then just galloped into the Aboriginal camp and started killing left, right and centre. And we think that the the battle, and it really was a battle, went on for quite a few hours. We don't know how long, but probably two to three hours. And at the end of it, we know at least 30 Aboriginal people had been killed uh, and the numbers were probably higher, probably around 50. It was the biggest engagement, the most substantive engagement in the whole uh, campaign uh, that Major Nunn ran. Major Nunn was not leading the group. He stood aside and left it to his second-in-command and other younger officers. I find that very interesting. So he didn't actually lead the group. He stood aside. I find... I'm I'm trying to work through why he did that. Some people suggest that he was actually a bit too old uh, to be leading the group. He was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, and he was getting on. Uh, And the other officers were much younger and much more eager eager for for battle. Mm. And so that was their big engagement, and they did a lot of damage. And uh, people in your part of the world I think, still talk about it
0: today. Oh, definitely. You know, I know mob down home, like, they march, you know, in protest, I guess, on the 26th of January, but then also they march, you know, to honour and pay respects to the mob at Waterloo yes. Creek. Um, you know, in previous years, they would drive out there and, you know, obviously as close as they can get to the side off the road um, yes. and do smoking and, you know what I mean, sort of stay there for a little bit and then head back into town mm-hmm. and, you know, finish the yeah. day off with the community. Um, some interesting points yeah. that you did mention, um, and I'd love to sort of talk on as well. So th- yeah. so th- th- this would have occurred just after the Bathurst Wars?
1: Well, it's, it's a good 10 years after the Bathurst Wars. It's really about where the the British are trying to establish pastoral properties. Mm-hmm. So... The Bathurst Wars stopped the spread further west of Bathurst. Um, so the, the settlers are moving north uh, from Bathurst and it takes a while. And the Bathurst Wars were all fought on foot. Um, well, you know, that, that's that why I
0: wanted it. to sort of yeah, have a chat, like how drastically did, yeah. I guess, uh, the tactics of the, the amount of police uh, change in regards to, um, are you reaching further north uh, and, and also, yes. you know, fighting with the other Radri mob as well?
1: Yes. Well, certainly the Bathurst Wars were not fought by mounted police. They were fought by uh, ground troops from the British regiment serving in Sydney. So the Bathurst Wars were... Um, Really, the end point of the Napoleonic Wars. There's no doubt about that, though the same tactics that were used in the battles in the Napoleonic Wars are used in the Bathurst Wars. Fifteen years later, all the British are on horseback. That's the big change. Horses have become the reason why, while settlements can spread, uh, we don't have shepherds anymore, we have stockmen. Who are all on horseback, so they're more mobile. They can stretch further, uh, further around. Um, they are running cattle as well as sheep, um, and cattle at that stage uh, are probably more likely to been used uh, around Moree, <clears throat> and Moree was as far as they went at that stage. By 1838, Moree is the furthest point of British. Um, British invasion. It's really the end point of the frontier. So it's you know, and that's where the um the were really at the heart of their resistance. There was sort of almost a base. All along the Guada River there are newly established um pastoral stations uh, and the whole of the Guada River is really the, the end point of the frontier in eighteen thirty seven. 38. So that's where you're going to get the, the best cut, the most um, recognisable resistance. The stockmen have got a few tricks up their sleeve. They're in a better position to attack Aboriginal campsites. They're in a better position to kidnap Aboriginal women. They're in a better position to um, perhaps uh, run down individual Aboriginal people and capture them. Um, so it's it's the the wars of 1837-38 are very different from the Bataista wars of 1824. So over a 15 year period, there has been a dramatic change in strategy on the part of the British invaders. They're using similar weapons, but weapons that have been um, changed a bit to be fired from horseback. Um, rather than from the ground they've got they're using more pistols because they're more flexible they're using swords um, that, that they can use from horseback and they're using cut down uh, brown best muskets uh, which they've called carbines that can also be fired from horseback so they've got m- more diversity in their weapons they've got more far more mobility and they can inflict far more damage uh, on
0: Aboriginal people. And obviously we see that being played out uh, when they you know, carry out the Waterloo Creek Massacre. Um, yes. Another point as well that I sort of wanted to raise was um, I guess the you know, the sort of number of people that would have been uh, that, that, that were massacred. I know um the, the like the number varies uh as well um and I guess like you know and back then these things I guess would have been reported on how many people were massacred you know back then uh when they were sort of reported massacres, did they always try and play down the number of people you know yes. uh, that were killed yes
1: and and also you don't see many reports they say, oh, we came across an aboriginal campsite and uh we asked the people to surrender and they didn't so in self-defense we had to they never used the word kill uh they never used the word massacre it, it implies that very little happened on this occasion however when major nun returned to sydney uh in february he met the new governor had since arrived arrived in sydney governor gibbs and he went in and said "Oh." I and gave him a verbal report and said, well, you know, we're popping off Aboriginal people wherever we saw them. And uh, he didn't really talk about Waterloo Creek, but he indicated that the whole operation had been a great success. He hadn't managed to bring back any uh, Aboriginal people. He hadn't managed to arrest many, uh, and those who'd been arrested had managed to escape. So he mm-hmm. hadn't returned with any trophies, really, um, of people. And the governor was horrified because he had come with new um, directions from London that uh, any Aboriginal person who was killed, uh, they had to have an inquest into the death, and that um, that there had to be more... Uh, detailed reports of every um, violent encounter with Aboriginal people. Well, Major Nun had none of that. So, and there were uh, rumours going around about this massacre. So, the governor established uh, a, uh, an inquiry from the Executive Council, which was the only legal body around. There was only about eight people on it, and they did interview. Uh, some of the uh, soldiers who'd been with Major Nunn and that's where you start getting some information and um, that's where you get the numbers of 30, 40 and 50 from one of the sergeants who'd been with Major Nunn and just as the committee is getting interesting information news of the Mile Creek Massacre comes through and the governor decided he wanted to get uh, use whatever resources he had to um, to get more detailed information. So the inquiry into Waterloo Creek just falls apart um, and it doesn't continue. However, the governor does send all the papers he's collected and all the people who are interviewed. The, the transcripts are sent off to London, and the Secretary of State for the Colonies writes back and says, "I have no doubt." that a massacre happened, and this must not continue. So Major Nunn, who thought he was a hero, you know, it sort of has his name besmirched in, in the press a bit. But other events overtake it. 1838 is a very violent year along the um, Guadal River and in other areas of Australia as well, in Victoria, uh, where settlement is going apace, other terrible things are happening. So Waterloo Creek kind of falls off the interest. You know, they, well, we weren't well prepared for that in having a proper inquiry. They focus on Waterloo, they focus on Mile Creek, where they, they can arrest the perpetrators or some of them, bring them to Sydney for trial. So that takes over. But it is along the Guada River, and everybody acknowledges that the Guada River is a very violent place in eighteen thirty eight at one end we've got uh we have um Waterloo <clears throat> Creek at the other end we've got mile Creek, and in between a lot of other massacres happen, which quite a few people are trying to find out more information, but we think that in the whole year of eighteen thirty eight probably three or four hundred Aboriginal people are killed. So it's a very violent year and it's bookended um over and, a six month period. And and that's sort that of way. in
0: along the Guayder, like in, in in the Gomorrah Nation, like there's about uh three hundred people that were massacred in that yes. sort of six month period. Wow.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So you know, 1838 is an incredibly violent year along the whole of the Guada River. And it's, you know, we know a little, we know about Waterloo Creek, we know about Mile Creek, but we don't know enough about what happened in between. And it was, um, you know, having the stockmen uh, in that area, having some of them had participated in the Waterloo Creek massacre, and they know what to do; they know how to plan it. they know how to uh attack campsites usually early in the morning, and they know how to uh corral aboriginal people and uh make it very difficult. It's also a big drought year; there's a big contest for water. The guada river is uh is drying up, so there's a there's a a contest for water resources on the part of the Gamilaroi and other groups and on the part of the Stockmen. So it's a very violent year and Waterloo Creek is the beginning of it
0: in a way. Mm. So you just mentioned some of the Stockmen uh, participated in some of these massacres, knew how to sort of you know, capture the mob, track the mob, corral them, um, went yes. to attack. Um, where do they yes. learn these tactics from?
1: Well, they're getting, they've learned all of that from watching the the mounted police who are all largely British soldiers from serving British regiments. They're they're very skilled and um, they get a lot of clues. Some of the stockmen are returned soldiers themselves who've been, who might've been, many of them were convicts or ex-convicts and quite a few convicts that served uh, with settlers on the frontier were experienced soldiers themselves who'd um so they knew a lot more about the tactics of war than we've realized we're learning a lot more about about that and some of the uh settlers themselves were returned servicemen from 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 the napoleonic wars had served in british regiments so it's a much more militarized Society on the part of the British than we've previously realised. We're learning a lot more. Some of them had served in other colonies, um, so they they were they were pretty experienced actually.
0: Mm. Um, As I mentioned before, you know this is comes at a time uh, where you know uh, the twenty sixth January um evokes a lot of emotion uh from aboriginal people uh it's um is a a conversation divider i guess in this nation um where do you sort of look at uh, i guess the work that you've um collated over the years uh and 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 where should it sit on on days like this and and how should we remember you know your work or or, the history as well
1: I th- one of the purposes of the MAP project was to indicate the violence of the frontier, how Aboriginal people really fought to keep their country, and that it's uh, we, we've got to acknowledge that. And if we don't do that, Australia's history just will remain hidden from everybody. I think Australia, white Australians have to grow up and accept that Australia uh, was a continent that was fought for and that the Aboriginal owners fought very hard to keep their country. I think, it you know, all of this happened now more than 200 years ago um, and that it's about time we accepted that and acknowledged that and made peace. I mean, I think we've got to... Make peace with Aboriginal people and acknowledge what had happened, and I think that's the only way we can go forward uh, as a nation. So, it's a, it's a, and then we thought that we hoped that the map would provide the evidence of these frontier wars, would provide evidence of the violence, would provide evidence of the proud ways in which Aboriginal people fought for their country and i think in looking at other parts of the british empire where where this was also going on in south africa and in canada and in new zealand that we need to understand that that this wasn't a peaceful process it was a very violent process and i'm pretty sure that those early settlers were well aware how violent it was they You know, settlers were killed, their their stockmen were killed and they lost stock. I'm very interested how it became silent. You know, how this veil of silence descends on all of this. And lifting that veil has been a very tough process. You know, you can't talk about it, you're inventing the past, all of this. But I think providing the evidence as much as we can find has been very helpful. People can sit and look at the map. They can uh, click on to various sites. It might be where they had relatives or ancestors took up land. Aboriginal people can see what happened as well. And I think it's providing pause for reflection. You know, you, The thing about the map is it's online. It's a digital map. People can sit at home and look at the map and download information. And in a, and certainly it's being used in, a, in schools I know in New South Wales and Victoria now, it will start to be used right across Australia. So we've got evidence that we can talk about, uh, reflect upon, and I think open up new ways of understanding the past. I certainly didn't learn anything about these at school. And also, I think it changes the way we look at Aboriginal people, and you know, as people who fought for their country, mm. fought in oh, a, yeah. a, their country, and really, very, very important. Just to acknowledge that is a
0: big step forward. Mm-hmm. Or, or I guess even sort of the inner sort of lookings of of of, of themselves as well. Like, um, this is the history that I wasn't taught, and this is the history that I uh, exactly. never had. And now mm-hmm. it gives me context in terms of why, you know, Aboriginal people protest today or why they don't Absolutely. like the twenty six, And, Absolutely. you know, yes, it, 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 I, I'm, I'm definitely on the same sort of wavelength as, as yourself, you know, in terms of the what this does for the next generation, especially those in school, because yeah. I, I didn't learn as in depth about you know the true history, or about um, the stuff that I've you know sort of collated within the podcast as well. And um, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get in, that, that that I do get invited to schools, um, and yeah. that the kids yeah. you know are very fluent in sort of this history. Um, you know, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yes, it
1: is all about. The next generation. There's no doubt providing so much more information, and so much of what we see now is Aboriginal pride in defending their country. You know, they. I was brought up to believe that Aboriginal people just faded from the landscape. First of all, Aboriginal people fought very hard, but Aboriginal people also survived. That's the other important aspect. They've survived to claim this past. And make it the present and the future. I think that's really important, and that's something that all Australians
0: can be part of. Definitely, and I guess that's a good way to sort of end uh, on as well. Uh, thank you, you know, Linda for always uh, you know coming on and wanting to have a chat uh, with me, and you know the continuation of your work, very inspiring, you know, uh, very thought provoking and you know is much needed uh you know and yeah. it's, it's uh, glad to hear that you know other places around the world are sort of starting to look at it and hopefully you know uh copy and and sort of you know yeah. do the exact same as well so you know much appreciated and um you know uh, thank you for the work that you do do
1: thank you very much for having me bo it was great to talk to you
0: and that was uh professor Lyndall ryan this is episode 32 of Frontier war stories don't forget you can uh, donate to the podcast uh, by becoming a Patreon subscriber uh, at uh, on the website. Um, if you just head over to um, uh, Podbean, uh, usually up in the top corners, there's the option to become Patreon, or you could also uh, donate to the PayPal, which is, I believe, on the frontier Stories instagram page but you know thanks everybody for listening this is going to be the first episode of 2023 many many more to come as well there's a lot that we still need to discuss and, and uncover that took place uh in uh, this period of time as well um and so i'm looking forward uh, to sharing more episodes awesomeblack.org comedy culture fun first nations owned. supported by you